0: Hello, and welcome to Northeast Christian Church's online services. We are so excited to have you here today. Please be sure to subscribe to NECC on all social media platforms. And if you want to watch this message again, or some of our other messages, you can always look us up on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Thank you, and enjoy the rest of the service. Amen. Well, didn't Pastor Kev do a great job last week? Enjoy that, Kev. I gave you such a glowing introduction last year. I didn't even get a hello. Like, kind of, kind of offended. Like, love you too. It's too late though. All right. Good morning, everybody. Glad to be here. Please be with you today as we begin Christmas time. It's where I shine, people. I've been playing Christmas music since October, and if you don't agree with that, you're just wrong, okay? I love Jesus' birthday more than you, and he knows it. And you can do penance by staying after church and helping me decorate for Christmas. That's not a joke. Um, And also, uh, our Christmas Eve service, we commit to keeping that a half hour for you guys, 6 to 6.30. We do it every year, and we stay on time. It's a Christmas miracle every time. But we do 6 to 6.30, we encourage you to be there on Christmas Eve. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Dylan, I'm one of the pastors on staff here, and today we're going to be uh, starting what will likely be an extended series on the Gospel of Luke. Excuse me. We go through whole books of the Bible because we believe it's important for you to be able to navigate the Scriptures on your own. Pastors are often criticized when they preach in this way, when we go section by section through a whole book for being boring or uninspirational. But we do this because we believe it's important for you. Very recently, I was in a cultural training run by the International Institute of New England. They were helping me get acclimated to Afghan culture for the refugees coming in. And they said something interesting. Afghans have a saying, Americans have watches and Afghans have time. And I laughed, and then I thought about our churches in that light. Oftentimes, this warped way of doing life seeps into our churches, and we treat preaching and worship like a microwaved meal. Give me something fast that tastes good, gets me going, and pumps me up. And we approach church in a way that seeks to be merely inspirational without being formative for our souls. Is it any wonder that the church in America has become anemic? We go through whole books of the Bible because it's important for you to hear the whole counsel of God. I hope you're inspired. I think I'm pretty inspiring. However, that's not the point. What I hope you gain from the gospel of Luke is a deeper, fuller connection to Christ and that you would glorify him with your life. Because a Big Mac might taste good for the day, but in the morning you're going to need some Pepto. Fast, inspirational sermons are like that. When you open the Bible and really consume the whole meal and not just cherry-pick inspirational verses for your social media, it begins to shape you. It molds you into the person you've wanted to be but haven't had the power to become. God's Word created the universe. It said, in the beginning, God spoke and said, let there be, and His Word is still powerful to recreate you if you have the time to listen to it. All you need to do is take off the watch Wait and listen to what the Spirit of the Lord would say through His Word. And so that's what we're going to pray He does today. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 starting in verse 1. But before we get there, I want to take a moment and pray. Lord. I pray that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your law, like Psalm 119 says. God, I pray that your word would accomplish the reason you sent it and that it wouldn't return to you empty, but it would produce 30, 60, and a hundredfold is sown. I pray that people would reap abundance in their lives because they obey your word. God, I pray I would decrease and that Christ Jesus would increase and be lifted up so that he would draw all men to himself. We ask this, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. Luke's gospel, chapter 1, begins with these words, starting in verse 1. You can follow along with me, listen to me, you can watch on the screens, turn to your own Bible, it's going to be Luke chapter 1, verse 1. And Zechariah said to the, or excuse me, Well, look at that, I just started reading a random place. <laughs> it's all right. We're imperfect too, right? Luke chapter 1, verse 1, inasmuch as many people have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good also to me, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. This is God's Word. Luke is writing to a man named Theophilus, which means friend of God in Greek. He's also writing in a classical form of Greek. The scholars of his day would have recognized as a legitimate work of history and not a work of fiction or just a story. Uh, He writes in a Greek, and this is, by the way, the only section of the New Testament that's written in classical Greek, the same Greek that Homer, Plato, or Aristotle wrote in, this section of the New Testament is written in, rather than the common Greek that everybody else spoke, which the rest of the New Testament is spoken in. Matthew begins like an Old Testament prophet, kind of reading through all the old genealogies. Mark begins like he barely has the time to introduce himself with one line. And John begins like some hippy-dippy kid who's, you know, waxing eloquently about the beginning of the universe. But only Luke begins in this way, by trying to give confidence and certainty to a struggling believer. He gives confidence to the questioning. And if you're a questioner this morning, the gospel of Luke is for you. God speaks the language of doubt, and he isn't scared of it. You're not a second-rate Christian for wanting to understand. What we'll learn, however, is that doubt is a road to drive on, not a neighborhood to move into. Luke begins by wanting to give Theophilus certainty again, and I view that as my role for you this morning. Paul the Apostle said later in the New Testament that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. All, all of you in your lives are going to hear many preachers, you're going to hear many voices, many theologians, many writers, psychologists, social ju- justice activists, and politicians, all trying to convince you of the wisdom and justice of their cause. But my hope for you, Northeast Christian Church, this morning from the outset is that you would learn to place your faith in Christ alone that you would have certainty. Some of you in this room have felt adrift for a very long time, and your faith has felt disconnected from your mind and your heart just about as long as you can remember, and you're not sure what you believe anymore or even why you believe it. The current research, according to Barna Research, says that 35% of Christians who attended church and practiced their faith before COVID began now no longer attend church or practice their faith. Let that sit in. 35%, one-third. Talk about a third of the angels in heaven. A third of the church in two years is missing. Hebrews chapter 2 says we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard unless we drift away from it. And I don't say this to guilt you. Some of you are in a place of hopelessness and apathy, and you're in the neighborhood of doubt. And if the most excellent Theophilus, the friend of God, needed confidence put back into his faith, then you and I certainly do. Maybe your faith has felt cold and dead. Maybe your suffering has brought you to a place of bitterness and life's disappointments have beat you down. If life has rocked you, then the gospel of Luke is for you. It's the good news for those who are in darkness in need of a ray of hope and light to cut through. It's for the church now in this hour, in this season to give hope back to those who don't have it. And if you get one thing out of today, I desire it to be this. When you're in the neighborhood of doubt, set yourself in the house of the Lord. It's no surprise that the Gospel of Luke begins with a hopeless situation. A barren old couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, who have served God all of their lives, have received nothing but disappointment in return. They have no child in a world where children were literally everything. Children were your social security, your medical care, your legacy, your honor, your hope, your lineage. Zechariah was a priest in the temple and Elizabeth was a righteous woman. And like the Old Testament story of Job, it must have seemed like serving God didn't pay. Have you ever been there in your life? At the point where the place, where the reward for faith really doesn't seem to match up to the cost you're paying for it. It's interesting that Luke starts this way, because oftentimes we find the greatest courage by hearing of how God worked in other people. Let's listen to verses 5 to 7 together. Verses 5 to 7, you can follow along on the screen as well. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Many of you guys know I like to read. I'm a pretty big reader. And in 1981, what was the start of the worst decade in history, in my opinion? I hate the 1980s, the hair, the music. am not going to go there. But in 1981... I digress. A best-selling book on suffering was published in the United States. It's a very famous book. It's called When Bad Things Happen to Good People by Rabbi Harold Kushner. And though many people quote this today and love it, what they don't know is that this book was born out of a place of deep personal sorrow. Rabbi Kushner had experienced what many would say is the worst possible loss, the death of his child. The rabbi's 14-year-old son passed away in Natick, New York, from a premature aging disease called progeria. He penned these words in reflection. For many of us, we will come to the point where death will be the only healer for the pain which our lives have come to contain. Merry Christmas. Welcome welcome to the holiday season. It's great. You can tweet that. But this hopelessness isn't unique to Rabbi Kushner. It's how Luke begins the Christmas prologue, the Christmas backstory, with two people, faithful people, who have a lifetime of empty hands and unfulfilled promises. Many of you have secret, painful losses of your own, burdens that you're bearing apart from the prying eyes of others, and like this old, righteous couple, too much pain, born for too much time, tends to immobilize you, and you find yourself frozen in a place where you don't want to be, a place of doubt, a neighborhood of doubt. Life's disappointments have a way of battering your faith into nothing if you're not circumspect. When suffering creates doubt, remember that it's a road to travel on and not a destination to live in. When you're in the neighborhood of doubt, don't buy property there. You can walk through tough places and still maintain your integrity. Notice what Luke says about Zechariah and Elizabeth in verse 6. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Luke notes that this old couple is righteous, blameless, they're careful to observe and do everything that God says. And I think that Luke knew it was important for men like Theophilus and people like you and I to know that God does not overlook a life well lived. And it's never too late to begin one if you feel like you need to, because a righteous life is not a sinless life. It's a consistent, yielded, obedient life. It's easy, however, for you and I to make the assumption that righteous living means immediate blessing. And when that doesn't happen, doubt comes. Some preachers would tell you in your lifetime, especially some Pentecostal preachers, blessing is yours if you just stop speaking death. Just have faith. And to them I would say what Jesus said to Peter, trying to get him to avoid the cross, get behind me, Satan, because you're setting your mind on the things of man instead of the things of God. God is magnificent, sovereign. His ways are not your ways. They're higher than yours. And he will not be formulated like a genie in a bottle to crack the code of his vending machine. Zechariah and Elizabeth should dispel any notion or illusion you have right from the beginning, that life with God will be free from trials. As Psalm 34 says... Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. In Psalm 119, in faithfulness you have afflicted me. This is not happy, clappy Christianity. This is an enduring joy that helps you walk through waters and not be burned, that helps you walk, or excuse me, fires and not be burned, and walk through waters and not be overwhelmed and drowned. This is the kind of faith that is presented to us as the Christmas prologue approaches. If you pass through something if God permits you to walk through it, He will sustain you. You can cast your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Zechariah and Elizabeth walked blamelessly, righteously, and they were childless, old, and barren. I say that to awaken you from the stupor of disappointment. Expect hardship. Hardship but expect that it is going to be used by God for your good and for His glory. A former prime minister of the Czech Republic by the name of Vaclav Havel once said this, hope is not the conviction that something will turn out well. It is the conviction that something makes sense. Your suffering is not a sign that God is somehow displeased with you. Let me expose a lie that I think some of you have believed. That God is out to get you and then forget you. That he's out on the hunt trying to expose you. And nothing could be farther from the truth. The enemy would love you to believe that God is out to get you and forget you. When the scriptures say that God is for you, who can be against you? They walked blamelessly and they were childless. You obeyed God, and you didn't get the job. You prayed in faith, and they still passed away. You gave your heart and soul to God, and you're still alone. Jesus lived a perfect life and was crucified and brutally murdered. Sometimes we feel like life takes a left turn and we ask ourselves how we ended up where we are and in those places you can be sure that it's not accidental. God is not angry with you, but it is for the glory of God. When you are in the neighborhood of doubt, set yourself in the house of the Lord. If Zechariah and Elizabeth were here this morning, they would echo the words of David, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Be careful then to continue in being righteous, not because it pays, but because it pleases God. Because if you want God to be near to you, James 4, 8 says, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Even if it takes a lifetime like Zechariah, don't be content to sit down in unrighteousness because you're disappointed with God. He may not give you the life you expected, but it will be better than any you imagined if you have the faith to live it. As it is written, no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. When you're in the neighborhood of doubt, set yourself in the house of the Lord. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, once said, For you will certainly carry out God's purpose, however you act, but it matters to you whether you act like Judas or John. Notice verses eleven or 8 to 11. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. The message Luke is communicating to Theophilus here and to us is that Zechariah and Elizabeth did not give up. When did God speak to Zechariah? While he was serving as priest. And in case you think this is only for religious professionals, Peter the Apostle in 1 Peter 2, verse 9 says that you, believers, are a nation and kingdom of priests. It's what we believe called the the universal priesthood. Every single one of you is a priest before God. And there is something to be said about continuing to do what God has put in front of you while you wait for Him. Because miracles happen in ordinary obedience far more often than they do in thunderous moments. Let me say that again. Miracles happen far more in ordinary obedience than they do in thunderous moments. In the last six months, um, I waded through a period of deep uh, personal doubt. Not in the existence of God, but in many of the truths I had assumed all of my Christian life. And I hope it gives you encouragement to know that the man behind the microphone shares the same thoughts and feelings that you do. I doubted my call, my effectiveness in ministry, God's love for me, the scriptures themselves. I felt useless here. I even spoke to Pastor Paul about not feeling fit to continue to minister. I felt like a fraud who doubted the very love he was supposed to make available to everyone else. Have you ever been there as a Christian? Feeling like God understands, forgives, loves every single person on this planet except one. And through Pastor Paul's guidance, I stayed put. I continued to minister. I continued to serve. I started seeing a clinical therapist. By the way, if any of you needs to talk to somebody, talk to us and let us know. Because this church believes in making therapy affordable for every single one of you. And partners with church therapy associates in order to do so. Counseling helped me not make a permanent decision in a temporary season of despair. I just kept doing what I knew to do, putting one foot in front of the other, praying, seeking, knocking, waiting, serving. Proverbs 18 says this, the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run in and are saved. But how do you do that? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) You can go home now. I'm not sure. I'm just kidding, but all I knew was to keep running to the name of Jesus. When things are rough, there's no place like home. And whatever else I questioned, I knew that Jesus was real, loved me, would help me, and I'd do anything for him, and the best place I knew was for my me to be in my father's house. Ironically, Charity approached me last week after service and said, uh, I had told nobody about this, but she said to me, Pastor, do you ever doubt you're called to preach? I said, yeah, all the time, Charity. She goes, don't. (laughs) Like, oh, I'm cured. Look at that. I'm just kidding. I love you, Charity. It was encouraging. Thank you. Some of you just have to keep showing up. You got to keep showing up in your marriages. You got to keep showing up in your work. You got to keep showing up with God. God. You know, I find when I'm at a place of bewilderment, a place of confusion, a place of frustration with God, if I just keep showing up in his presence, he'll speak. It's when I'm not in the temple, not in the house of the Lord, that I can't hear him anymore. Zechariah and Elizabeth just kept doing what they were supposed to be doing, where they were supposed to be doing it, with the people they were supposed to be with they showed up. The biblical word is they persevered. They pressed on when I'm sure they didn't want to. They put themselves in the temple of God with the people of God. And a word for those of you who may be disconnected from church, keep showing up. I'm not just talking about church attendance, though that's part of it. You need this weekly gathering. But I mean, keep being the temple of God. You see, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. It was demolished in 70 A.D. And the New Testament does not primarily look forward to an end times rebuilding of the temple. Let me say that again. The New Testament does not primarily look forward to some end times rebuilding of the temple because you now are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God's presence will never be more tangible than it is when God's people are gathered together in Christ's name. Listen to verse 10. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside. There is no record in the Old Testament of people praying together at the hour of incense. This was a unique experience for Zechariah. God spoke to him when the people were together in prayer. I've been to Jerusalem I've been to the temple ruins and I've touched the stones with these hands in which God's presence once dwelled, and I can tell you with all certainty that God no longer dwells in temples made by human hands, but he is building for himself a temple and house in the hearts and minds of every believer in the sound of my voice. When you are in the neighborhood of doubt, set yourself in the house of the Lord. This means placing yourself. In the care of other believers who will pray for you, intercede for you, lift you up so that your moment of spiritual breakthrough can come. Luke is reminding Theophilus that certainty in isolation is impossible, but together you and I will overcome our hardships. That's why we got to pray together. The temple is no longer a place. It's a community. It's a group. That's why when Jesus says where two or three are gathered, there I am among them. When we're gathered together, that's when we hear God most clearly. Every month, uh, you can throw that picture up there, I get together with a few other young pastors. Everybody go, ooh, handsome. That was weak, guys. I think I'm more handsome than that. Anyway, we get, we get together. Once a month, we pray for each other. We support one another. I love these guys to death. We read the Bible, and we came to this conclusion. We read the Bible most accurately, or let me say it a different way. We hear from God most clearly when we're together versus when we're apart. And you've experienced this, right? When you open this thing at home, you know, this is the best version of counting sheep sometimes, right? It's like, yes, okay, I'm reading about Ezekiel and judgment, and man, that's putting me to sleep. It feels like flat words on a page when you're by yourself. But then you come to church after reading a Bible verse, and somebody comes up to you, that sister comes up to you, and she shares encouragement with you, and she talks about what you've already been reading without knowing it, and you feel God's Spirit speak to you. Or an elder or a deacon or a deaconess approaches you and encourages you in a way that they never knew that you needed. Or that pastor's amazing sermon just blew your mind, changed your life. You see, God whispers when we're alone but he shouts when we're together. And the best way to pull up your tent pegs from doubt is to put down roots in the house of the Lord with the family of God. You see, those other young pastors, John, Andrew, Anthony, Tyler, all comfort me by hearing me, encouraging me, reminding me, loving me with Christ's words, except they're no longer just words. They're incarnate prayers. They're flesh and blood examples of Christ and his spirit. They're little embodiments of Christ to me as I am to them. You need that in your life. That's why every single one of you should be looking to join a small group to form connections and you can email us office at to do that. Especially you men. Men are, listen, I'm, I'm a man so I can make fun of you. Men are terrible at talking about what they're actually going through. I'm awful at it. I'm terrible. I need other men to be like, what, what's going on in your actual head? It helps, right? Just do it. Our 21 days of prayer and fasting are beginning in January. We call it Pray First. By the way, if you struggle with an eating disorder, Please do not fast food. You do not have my blessing to do that fast Instagram or something. I don't know. What to do. Recapture your time in other ways. But we're starting Pray First in January, 21 days of prayer and fasting. You should be here on Saturday mornings, 9 to 10 a.m., Like, to lift up other people's burdens in in prayer and to have other people lift up your burdens in prayer and see if God doesn't speak, if you would just do that for a month. Jesus said to his disciples, could you not pray with me for one hour? And you should be spending time with people one-on-one. Take them out for coffee, like Pastor Paul said. Share your burdens with them. Let them share their burdens with you. And you may just find God speaks to you through them and you are God's vessel to them. And guess what? It's going to be really messy. Okay, this is not a clean program, right? You're going to rub each other the wrong way. Some of you are sandpaper, and some of you need to be a little more assertive, okay? Like, there are all sorts of things, and this is a messy process, okay? He's not here today, so I'm just going to pick on him, so whatever. Sam and I are roommates, okay? And we've become one of each other's best friends over time. I love Sam to death. He's a military chaplain. He's a volunteer pastoral guy here. Uh, he's He's a great man. But heat drives me insane some days. Okay, like I walk into what used to be my clean tidy office and now his desk is there too and it looks like an orangutan tried to write a college essay and instead did shots of Red Bull on top. Like it just looks like a complete disaster and it stresses me out and I hate it. And then me, I'm sure I rub him the wrong way in other ways, I look, you know, I fold about as much laundry as a 15 year old boy who's had his arms amputated. There's just piles everywhere, it's awful. Yeah, you can say it. We deserve each other. We're quite the pair. I know. But you see, the point I'm making is that you need the people of God in your life, even when they frustrate you, even when you don't like it, because your spiritual vitality depends on it. You may find that God speaks clearly through others what you were expecting him to speak privately to yourself, and perhaps the reason God hasn't been speaking to you is because you think you're a one-man band. And yet listen to this, the angel of the Lord says the following, in spite of all that, he says, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. In particular, I want you to look at verse 13. He says, for your prayer has been heard. This is singular in Greek. It's a singular your. It means your prayer in particular, meaning that God hasn't just listened to all the people praying outside. He's listening to Zechariah. I hope you take great comfort in this fact that God listens to you in particular even when the answer is delayed. Other people are necessary, but God hears you. The Psalms say he inclines his ear to you. He, he ducks down to listen. You know, when I first became a believer, I was 18. I was working in a veterinary hospital. Worst job ever. There was just so much animal stuff. I, I hate dogs now. Love cats. But that's neither here nor there. Anyway, so I'm working this job, right? I'm very frustrated. It's a difficult season of life. I'm going through a lot personally. I'm going through a lot of sin. You know, I'm a new believer. There's, there's just a lot of stuff that God was still working on in my life and I felt so discouraged, and I remember praying that day, God, do you even listen to me? My coworker brought me some Chinese food, tossed me a fortune cookie, cracked that puppy open first, because you know dessert first is... Anybody willing to tell the truth? Shame the devil? Yeah, nobody else does that? All right. I popped that thing open, I pulled the fortune cookie out, and it says, God listens to you especially. A little smiley face on it. Now, that's a terrible way to drive most of your theology. I wouldn't recommend that. However... It's encouraging to know that God hears us. The angel here speaking to Zachariah is Gabriel. He he appears another time in the Bible in Daniel chapter 9. The prophet Daniel is praying and praying and praying and to ask God to have mercy on him and his people. And God is silent for decades to Daniel's prayers. Some of you have been praying for children and for spouses and for the people you love a very long time. Do not despair. God hears you. And Gabriel says this to Daniel after almost 70 years of exile. He says, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I've come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Gabriel's basically saying, Daniel, when you started praying, God sent out the answer, and it's arriving just on time, and God loves you. This is great encouragement, that when God seems to be delayed, he's actually right on time. His deliverance comes when it's meant to come, and it's for the best, even when it doesn't seem to be to us. When it feels like the temple doors are slammed shut and the lights in your father's house are out, keep awake, keep praying, and wait on the Lord. God has meaning in delayed answers, hard lessons, Painful lessons are still merciful lessons. And God is no less gracious, glorious, and good because he permits you to walk through them. In fact, we may see more of his goodness because we go through certain things where we may have missed it otherwise. I like to read from a broad collection of journalists to avoid kind of being pigeonholed in my thinking. And uh, I know Sienna hates the New York Times, but my favorite from the New York Times is Ross Dothat. He struggles with a chronic illness, and he released a book recently called The Deep Places. And I read this quote from him about two weeks ago when I was in the most debilitating, mind-numbing pain of my own. And he said this, to believe that your suffering is for something, that you are being asked to bear up under it, is tremendously helpful to maintaining sanity and basic hope. The real Christian answer to the problem of suffering is that we have the problem all wrong. That it's actually more mysterious when good things happen to good people than it is when bad things do. Because if God gave his son to the cross, then a version of the same is what every Christian should expect. I read that. And I was on pain meds that were just making my condition worse, and nothing was helping. But in that moment, I felt the presence of God wash over me, meditating on the suffering of Jesus. You see, God could have redeemed humanity in any way, but He chose the way of the cross. God could have given me any life, but He gave me this one. God could have answered Daniel in a day, but He took decades. Decades. Maybe if you got what you wanted right now, you wouldn't be the person you're supposed to be. And maybe you've been trusting the healing rather than the healer, the gift rather than the giver, and trusting power rather than the king who wields it. What if you saw God as sovereign, powerful, allowing you to walk through this present hardship so that others might see him more clearly through your life? What if God did could have given Zechariah a child in a day, but instead let him pray for a lifetime. Why did he do that? Verse 17, because God wanted to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to prepare for the Lord a people. If John had been born normally, he would just be another priest's son. But because the agony of Zechariah and Elizabeth were public, so was the miracle. And God had more in mind than just one father. He wanted to turn the hearts of all the fathers to himself. You see, the story that is written in your blood, sweat, and tears might spell out hope for other people if you just have the courage to write it. The story that God spelled out for your redemption is written in the blood of his own son and he shows his power and mercy by inviting you into that same pattern and that gives hope where it cannot be found anywhere else. Do you have the courage to bring your questions to God in his temple? Do you have the courage to write the story that God has put in front of you with the pen he has given you? Because if you bring your faults to the temple, you may discover that the gates have been locked from the outside the whole time. Even if you're struggling with doubt, like Zechariah did later on, God can still bring you through that and be merciful to you in spite of it. God can still do a miracle. And like Vivian's story last week or Chris's story before that, your pain can be composed into a Christmas song that causes other people to worship if you'd simply have the courage to write it. About two weeks ago, in pain, I raised my hand to heaven and said, not my will, but yours be done. If you see fit that I endure pain, I believe that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living through this and that it is not for nothing. I trust God for healing, but I trust him for his wisdom and his goodness much more because when you're in the neighborhood of doubt, you need to set yourself in the house of the Lord. Other people live in that neighborhood as well and your story might be the only door they ever get into your father's house. Just like Zachariah and Elizabeth were, For a man called Theophilus 30 years after they were dead. A lifetime of suffering, was it worth it? It might just be the refuge that other people in this rough neighborhood need to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And it might happen through your life. What glory could your hardship mean for another? What hope might it give? What a gift it might be? Maybe God is just waiting for you to embrace the beautiful hardship he's placed in front of you, like Christ embraced the cross, even while despising it, so that he might bring many people to God. What if you saw your suffering through those lens and followed the example of Christ, Zachariah, Elizabeth, and every man and woman of God since time began finding the truest joy and unity with God through suffering, not avoiding it. Because when you wander into that bad section of town, you might find that that's exactly where your father's house is. When you're in the neighborhood of doubt, set yourself in the house of the Lord. Christmas season is often called Advent which means we look forward to the coming of Jesus, not just to celebrate his birth, but to expect his second coming, the way people looked to his first. And just like Zechariah and Elizabeth, even if you've made mistakes, you can place yourself in God's house while you wait for him and invite other people in. I don't know what this rough neighborhood looks for you like for you. It looks different. For some of you, it looks like death. For others, anger, disillusionment, bitterness. It can even look like keeping God at arm's length because that's easier than hoping again. But this Christmas season, my hope for you, like Luke for Theophilus, is that you would walk into your Father's living room with certainty. Not certain of the outcome, but certain of the God who's there. It's time to run into the name of the Lord and to return to His house where this Christmas story begins. And if you have doubts and questions, pray along with David one thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I would dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. The best place for your inquiry, for your questions, for your doubt, for your suffering is the house of the Lord, which you will dwell in all of your days. The best place for you is the family of God in his house. And you might not know if you're in that family. Or some of you might feel estranged from that family. You've let the heartache, the pain, the suffering of life beat you down into dust. And you've let it drive you from the Father who loves you. It's time to come home. It's time to allow God to turn your Christmas pain into a parable and your suffering into a song that this Christmas hymn written in your life would be one that echoes into the lives of the people that you know and reconciles them to your father and their father. But you have to worship him when you don't want to. You have to praise him when it doesn't feel like it. You have to be willing to say, not my will, but your will be done. And you have to be willing to walk out of doubt into the house of the Lord. And that takes faith that takes being united with Jesus in suffering so that you can be united with him in resurrection. And I'm going to invite you to do that this morning. I'm going to invite you to stand and worship the God who is sovereign and powerful over your life. Let's worship him, who's worthy of it all. Thank you again for being with us today. If you want to watch this or listen to it again, you can always go to YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. And for all news and updates about what's happening here at the church, you can go to ne-cc.org or lolag.org. Thank you and God bless.